Welcome to the Football by Football Podcast. And welcome back to the In the Game Podcast. This is Matt Chatham, joined by Brady Quinn, ready to dive into a little different kind of show than we do for you guys. I know week after week, we'd like to go through the last week's game, preview the upcoming games, but we kind of got hit over the head with a little bit of a uh, thunderstorm here of, of storylines. It's one of the heavier that I remember in sort of recent meeting, meet, uh, recent weeks, uh, where it's really been some headline dominating stuff for card comes on the field. So we'll do that ourselves. Uh, just an oddball week, the biggest of which, uh, at least for sort of life purposes, is this Josh Brown story. Because as Brady and I are here recording this, uh, new information has come out that the Jets are claiming a team spokesman says the team was unaware of patient documents in the Josh Brown case released to the press last night, last night being Wednesday evening. Uh, so there's some pretty sort of details in there, Brady. There's uh, a journal. It appears that Josh Brown was keeping uh, where he admits openly to, to domestic abuse, uh, beating his wife and all those kinds of things. Uh, sort of, where do you stand on this? Uh, how do you sort of interpret the, the, the mess we, we seem to now have here in the league? Well, I think I'm just baffled and fascinated by the fact that someone could do something so heinous and, and then kind of recall it, be able to, to write it into something and be able to live with themselves without you – know, be able to live with that guilt, without coming out and, and basically owning up to the mistake that you made and, and paying your punishment for it. Like I personally – I don't know how you feel. I couldn't live with myself. I wouldn't personally be able right. to go into a locker room and be around a bunch of other men and, and be able to live with the fact of what I did in the past and have to look them in the eyes, look them in the face, knowing that eventually this was going to become public. I mean, yes, the NFL investigation uh, seemed like it dragged on for a while, then it closed. Now it's going to be reopened as far as how they may punish them, given the fact that they've got this, I guess, new evidence, if you want to call it that. But at this point in time, that's what I'm most baffled by, is you, you've, you've already seen, too, what's happened with Ray Wright. I mean, so eventually, you, you at some point in the back of your mind, wouldn't you think that, you would want to at least come clean to the team, to your teammates, stand up as a man and, and admit that you, were, that you were wrong, that you made a mistake, and try to go find help for it. I mean, think about this. This guy has been living his life now for what, the past year, uh, basically uh, just going through his everyday schedule routine like really nothing's changed. Now, again, I, I don't know what's going on inside his head, but the fact that he's kind right. of continued to you know, go through the motions like a status quo, and that's just – you know, that, you know, like nothing happened. It just it baffles me that, that a person or a human being could live like that. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I think you bring up an angle of it that I hadn't thought about, just the sort of living with yourself part of, of where that kind of a heinous a dude that did something like that had to not only go back and, and face other peers that know you've been accused of it, but know – the depth of what you've done in this instance, writing journals about all the crap you've done to this woman, throwing things, hitting things, breaking things. There's photos of a giant bruise on her, on her leg. Uh, there's whispers here. And again, we're doing a show. We're sort of learning in real time, a lot of the information. So I don't want to make this into, uh, you know, kind of like a deflate gate thing where former players aren't fully in, fully invested in the information, start hot taking. So I won't do that. I'm just saying I'm still at a sort of stage of curiosity here where this really looks bad. Uh, but what I would say is, you know, if you're your teammate and, and you know this stuff has gone on, and I, there was actually an instance there where other one of his uh, teammates was taking part in marriage counseling with him, where it was an open and known thing that he was having an issue with domestic abuse. 
how that can be a thing um, where the NFL is running these ad campaigns and John Mara, the owner, is is, is sort of flag waving about the importance of this issue. And I just I'm reading these quotes here now about, you know, John Mara coming out, making statements, team spokesman coming out and saying stuff. Uh, SNY is sort of doing the dirt digging there to try to find it exactly who knew what and when. But they mentioned due diligence. It's the word, hey, we did our due diligence. Hey, we talked to this person. Hey, we did that. Uh, comfortable with the decision to just go with a one-game suspension. A, that makes no sense to me because Ray Rice, basically, we were we were supposed to supposed to now be in a world where if there was a stench of anything, even in the absence of conviction, because of Greg Hardy, because of Ray Rice, it was going to be that auto six-game thing. So this is sort of like, hey, first at bat, what did you? What are you going to do? We're going to do better, like Roger says. He's like, we screwed up the last one. We have to be better. That Whatever, I'm butchering that quote. But something to that effect. And this is your first opportunity. And basically, you're upended by not enough due diligence again. It's just, to me, it's a, a different shade of the Ray Rice thing. Ray Rice was, you just really pursue the, the video hard enough. This appears that there's some readily available uh, documents and, and court court documents or whatever kind that doesn't necessarily need to be released. They did. That's, that's probably the part I need to figure out here a little better, but it clearly it looks like there's information that makes this an absolute slam dunk that you didn't get your hands on. And, and that's unconscionable. If you're going to, if you're going to really have your next at bat be another, you know, one strike strikeout. So, uh, the NFL put themselves in the corner. I, I wonder uh, how this is going to go down because Anheuser-Busch was one that came out with a really, uh, sort of cryptic statement when, when the Ray Rice thing happened, it almost as like, you know, one of the, they're one of your biggest advertisers in, in America for this, for sports. And it was sort of a, hey, get your act together, NFL. If they keep capturing these things and ad people start to peel away, that's when stuff happens. And, you know, I'll be curious to see where that goes. I'm I'm on your side of this, Brady, with, you know, someone who's been, you know, a quarterback, which is really more of a leadership position in the locker room than, than other guys. At what point do you feel comfortable talking to a dude that you know has done something, but maybe the league went a little light on him? I mean, is it more just as a friend thing where you just have to, you know, do the Christian thing and be forgiveness? Or is it more like, man, I can't, I don't know if morally I can sit with this and watch you just keep playing football games. The hardest part about answering this question is I've kind of had to experience it uh, from this standpoint. You know, I was teammates with Dante Stallworth, wide receiver. I'm, I'm sure. I don't know right. if you may have played with him in New England or not, but, you know, no, he went jet, through jet basically a, a scenario where he took, um, you know, he, he took the life of, of someone while he was intoxicated and actually high at the same time. Uh, driving under the influence and you know again I don't know the particulars of, of what took place from a legal standpoint um, but uh, the end result was he shouldn't have been driving he struck a human being that they can no longer now be with their family and uh, look as, as a Christian guy I kind of had to come to grips with the fact that he's someone who I developed a rapport with as a friend the season before and not only were we were, were we going to lose him for the rest of, of the next season because of all this uh, but it was just the fact that, you know, what he had done. And, you know, he was someone who was obviously incredibly, incredibly remorseful about his actions, and he went through all, everything you could imagine um, to try to rectify the situation, seek help uh, with the things that he was dealing with and educate himself and all of that. Um, and so I think he took the proper steps, you know, to, to get back right. Because, look, he's a human. Everyone makes mistakes. That could have been anyone. There, there's, a, there's a ton of athletes that probably put themselves in compromised positions that end up being okay on any given week, on any, on any given weekend night, 
or in particular in the offseason, you know, during that time. And they probably end up making it home okay. Whether that's right or wrong, I mean, I think we can all agree that's wrong. You know, these players should be able to take care of themselves better. But I had to come to grips with the fact that I was going to be seeing this man again at some point. And there were so many questions and things I wanted to ask because I think I was, um, you know, obviously, you know, confused why he didn't decide to just take a cab, right. get an Uber, something like that. But why he made that decision, why he, you know, in that moment, regardless of what drugs you're on, how much you drank, how you couldn't have a clear enough mind and thought process, realizing how privileged you are to play in the NFL. If, if that's the one thing that's the motivating factor, how can you not realize how blessed you are to be in the situation that you're in to prevent yourself from making some sort of idiotic mistake, regardless of what that may be. Um, so, so personally, that was one of the hurdles. And that was one of the things that like I had to kind of deal with and coming to grips with having to, you know, see someone who had done something that, you know, altered the, the lives of a family and, obviously, um, you know, took the life of someone else. And, you know, it's, it's something that I'm sure he'll never forget. And, and maybe that's the case for Josh Brown. I don't know Josh Brown. I just know it, it's incredibly hard for someone when you're, like, talking about a quarterback who's in that leadership position to then look at someone the same way when they've made that sort of mistake. Because, you know, the game of football, is just, it's just a game. It's just that. It's, enter- it's entertainment, to be honest with you. You then look outside of, like, from a greater perspective and look at, you know, what's taking place and, and, and the impact that it's had on the game and its reputation and, and you know, how it's impacted the family and everything else. And, and you sit there and say, like, that, that's the greater story. That, that's, that's the greater impact in all this. Right. Forget football. The fact that, like, you know, you know, he's allowed this platform and the ability to play football, yet in Josh Brown's case, he does something so heinous. I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous to think about. And you know, I think, look, for me – you know, if, if the NFL, you know, allows guys like that to play, I haven't been in the position where I've, I've played with a, a teammate who's been uh, accused or charged with domestic violence or anything of that nature. Mm-hmm. So I haven't had to fortunately deal with that. But I would have a really hard time communicating and really wanting to play with that individual. Uh, because I just, you know, being, a, being a, a father now to a daughter, being a son, right. being having two sisters, it's just something I could never, never, you know, believe, agree with understand how you could get that wrong. I mean, there's a fundamental issue there with how you think, if you think it's okay to lay hands on a woman. Right. And, and it's something that uh, I'm sitting here as I'm listening to your answer and I'm, I'm, I'm waffling. I'm like, you know, how am I going to phrase this without sort of downplaying the fact that there was a lost life and, you know, with the, with the situation with Dante uh, Stallworth, I mean, that's, it's, it's, there's not the consequence there is loss of life. You can't get bigger than that. So obviously there can't be anything worse than that, but it's almost though, as if you can hold it in a slightly different regard because it takes a moment's bad decision and something like that, that calamitous can happen and it did. And someone loses their life. And like you said, their mother, father, son, brother, whatever is gone forever. And you can't ever get that back. But I think because of sort of normal human experience, a lot of us know that, uh, you know, we've all probably made one or two or three bad decisions in our life that we're fortunate didn't go that way. Maybe not that extreme, but something right where something much worse could have happened. that didn't. So I think there's sort of that thing in the back of our head that says in the absence of, you know, in, in the event that the, the remorse is real, there is sort of that little thing that says, you know, I, I can't just ostracize this guy for the rest of time. If indeed it was just a moment in time where it was a bad decision. If you see a pattern of behavior, like the dude did it and then just continues to do it, or he did it a hundred times before then. And this is just the one time it finally bit him. I don't know Dante like that. So I would, I don't want to 
trash them or even make a guess. But uh, if that were the case with that kind of thing, you might think entirely different of it. That's why I think the Josh Brown thing is so different. I mean, there's like 19 cases here. I mean, there's like all these different police reports and accusations, at least that she had made and, and, and a long history of phone calls and, and complaints of this and police visits and, you know, interviews. And like I said, the marriage counseling where it was out in front that there were people were being hit. I mean, like, this is not, this wasn't like, you know, uh, an impulse swing of the arm and a, an immediate regret. It was like a go to bed, wake up, do it another day kind of thing. And that's, that's where it's like, even though no one died, I almost feel like, you know, it's easier to hold that person much more, more culpable with something, but you know, it, it's a tough call. Um, the one thing I, you may have heard the little ding, ding, ding in the back is, is Brady's answer was going through. And what that was is I've got my iPad open here as we're talking and this is developing news here from NFL mobile. It says that the NFL is now reopening the investigation into Josh Brown. So it's wide ass open again, and they're playing this card. And this is where I think the NFL starts to lose credibility. They basically said that this, uh, the King County and Washington Sheriff's office that would have been in charge of these accusations with Josh Brown, they said that, the, the NFL made both oral and written requests for information. The sheriff's office just wouldn't give them anything better than what they had. And now that they have it, well, they're willing to, to put a more proper judgment upon it. So the NFL says, uh, you know, uh, that was me paraphr- paraphrasing basically what's going to now happen. They're reopening it. They're going to come up with a new suspension. But what the, the immediate question sort of that brings up for me is I think for the NFL to can remain credible, you have to, we would have to know – exactly what information they did had that was enough to warrant the one and where do you get one like how does one if the six is the new thing was it one sixth as bad or you know like i I don't get it just seems so incredibly arbitrary and a little bit corrupt to be honest because when when you don't play a guy that that helps a football team so why why did they go light how much information did they have and i think the public and other players should be able another team should be able to determine if they soft shoot it because if what they had was actually pretty bad and warranted more than one uh, you know, I think publicly you should be able to now make a determination if the NFL's full of shit. I mean, if if they now have enough of information to make this six game, eight games, or something big, or whatever it is they'll do, and you find out that they actually had plenty of information to already do the six or eight, they just now have more of it and it became public, so it's more embarrassing for them. I think that's a huge story. I really do. It's almost as if sort of the the same mistakes being done again. Uh, they're reopening it because someone made it public. We would have to know, I think, to be, to be honest about it, we would have to know exactly what they have to determine if one was enough. It was just taking people's word. John Mara, we, we looked into it pretty hard, and I'm comfortable with the decision. Uh, if, if they're not releasing this information now and he had the information today, would he, would he, you know, of his own admission, just simply bring it forward? Probably not. I highly doubt that. With the NFL, if this wasn't released on the Internet, there's a bunch of stories, SNY doing digging, uh, pro football talk posts and all this stuff. If they, if they didn't do that, is, is, is the NFL – just offering it forward to make themselves look bad? Probably not. I mean, they have no history of that. So that's why I kind of look at this a little side eye and, and say, I think this is just the NFL doing their own nonsense again, getting caught and having to sort of dig out of a hole. So we will see. Uh, so moving on to another, I want to bring the whole show down that way, but uh, it's obviously a very, very important issue and something that will probably be something we'll bring it up on future shows as we learn more about this stuff. Uh, as I mentioned off the front, big hot week of storylines, the biggest of which, it's why it's fun to have a uh, have a passer on the show here, is the stuff with the pass interference uh, at the end of the Seattle-Atlanta game. One of the biggest games of the weekend, uh, probably one of the more blatant pass interference non-calls you'll see, and it actually sort of ends the game. <laughs> you know, uh, Julio Jones is running a, a post route or whatever down the middle of the field, and 
uh, Sherman just grabs his arm. And, and I'm, you know, as a defensive player, I'm usually okay with some tugging, some pulling, uh, you know, contact of any kind. But the one thing that I kind of sort of have to admit that you, you, you absolutely can't do is hold an arm because at the end of the day, you, you got to catch the ball with your arms. <laughs> so what was, what was sort of your take on that, Brady? Uh, you know, what did you see there? Well, so let's just go back to the beginning of the play. So let's try to understand why Richard Sherman was holding Julio Jones' arm. It actually should have been illegal hands to the face by Julio Jones. Right. On the line of scrimmage, Richard Sherman was pressed up against him. He slapped the helmet of Richard Sherman, which kind of knocked him a yep. little bit off balance. He lost vision for a half second. And that's all it takes for Julio Jones to get by you vertically. So then Richard Sherman was in catch-up mode from that point moving forward. So clearly there was a missed call there uh, that would have kind of eradicated any sort of pass interference anyways at the end of this play. So as, as Richard Sherman went to play catch up and Julio Jones proceeded to run by Earl Thomas as well, Richard Sherman then finally got back into position as the ball was, I guess I'd say a, a touch underthrown by Matt Ryan. And yeah. with that being the case, Richard Sherman was able to get to the hip of Julio Jones and hold down that right arm as he tried to go up with his left arm and clearly couldn't make a play on the football with two arms. There's no doubt in my mind that was pass interference. Uh, it was probably one of the more blatant ones only because it happened to be in the middle of the field, not necessarily on the sidelines where just from being a broadcaster, they actually don't have quite as many good angles because the sidelines limit, right. sidelines limit that sometimes. So actually it was a bit more exposed for that reason. Unfortunately, there wasn't really a good angle for any official out there. Maybe if they added an eighth official, maybe they would have been in a proper position to be able to see pass interference in that case. Uh, but that being said, you know, this is one of the plays that, you know, it should have been called, but if that's the case, it should have been called the line of scrimmage as well. So really it would have been a moot point and, and we would have moved on. Seattle would have still won the game, at least in my opinion. But as far as the discussion for whether or not pass interference should be reviewable, I think it should be if you're going to keep the rule the way it is. And the reason I say that is this. That pass interference call alone could have been, what, a 40-yard uh, you know, advantage for the Atlanta Falcons that would have changed or altered right. the course of the game. They would have been sitting there ready to kick off or, excuse me, kick a, a, a field goal to win the game. And, yep. one, it also assumes, right, if you give them that yardage advantage, that the wide receiver would have caught the football. And it's not like we haven't seen wide receivers drop footballs in the open field. I mean, the opening, opening week, we saw Kenny Stills, one of the first plays of that game versus the Seattle Seahawks there in Central Link. He dropped a wide-open pass. That would have easily been a touchdown. So uh, it takes into a few things. One, the assumption that the wide receiver would have caught it if, without being interfered with. Uh, but it also can change the outcome of a game, which makes it incredibly unfair for defensive players, in particular at the end of half or at the end of the game. Uh, so I guess my solution would be it should be reviewable because of the importance being that they get that advantage of yardage. That makes sense to me, at least in my mind. And if, if, you, if you're worried about it holding up the game, because they'd be essentially reviewing every single time there's a pass interference call, uh, then you just essentially limit it to so coaches can challenge it to then have it be a reviewable play for the booth to check it out yeah, and see it, whether right. or not it was pass interference. The only caveat that, or a change that I would like to see and, and have it made, and, and I think this would be a little bit better as far as making it a reviewable call, is just make it first down and 15 yards. You know, I, that's what the college rule is. I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure why the NFL wanted to adopt this rule where you get the advantage of yardage. Um, look, people, you know, people don't understand. This can legitimately change the outcome of a game. It's, it's affected me before. Oh, it 2009, the Cleveland Browns versus the Detroit Lions, they throw a Hail Mary with no time left. We get called for pass interference in the end zone. That means the Detroit Lions get an untimed down. 
They're down by, I, I believe, a touchdown. Yeah, a touchdown at that point in time, seven points. They proceed to throw a touchdown pass, and then they proceed to go for two, and they get the two-point conversion. <laughs> so, literally, we lost because of that pass interference call at the end of the game. Now, in, th- in this particular scenario that I'm talking about, clearly, if it was pass interference on a Hail Mary like that, it, it, they wouldn't get the ball at, what, the two-yard line, the three-yard line. They, they would just get the 15-yard advantage and then one more untimed down. Uh, but, but that's the difference to me is I think it just changes the outcome of the game and it impacts it too heavily, which is unfair to the defense. And really, in my mind, as much as you want to say it's an offensive game, you want to see points and scores, uh, it's just it's too drastic of a change of field position at times. And you know how important that field position battle is. So I, I guess maybe I made a case for, for making it reviewable, but at the same time, I think they need to change the advantage that it gives teams uh, and make it 15 yards instead of it being this kind of ambiguous whatever the distance of the throw was. Right, right. We are 100% on the same page today on this particular issue because I, I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head. You, you, it's, it's one thing to have those thoughts sort of swimming around an official's head where it's a, it's a penalty at other times in the game. But now, you know, I don't want to give that swath of land because it would mean so much in this game. Well, then why do you have a penalty that does that, right? I mean, don't, yeah. don't have one – don't have a flag in your pocket that can give 60, 50, 60 yards of field position. If you feel that there's that much of a moral conflict, you shouldn't have it as a rule. And I don't think you should have it as a rule. I think it should be 15 yards. I, I just don't think you should ever presume anything about a play. If you were interfered with, you were interfered with, let's go do it again and, and move it forward 15 yards but it's that, that's it and I really I feel strongly pot foul just being a one of the dumber things the NFL done has done in the last I don't know 15 years however long it's been allowed 10 I don't remember when the change happened but that and then the illegal contact thing I hate as well and I think that the best case for it and and you you sort of touched on it is that college football does not have these rules right and college football may is scoring more points per game you know so I it's not like it's not, and I know the argument is, oh, there's so much better athletes in the NFL and they'll lock each other down and they'll never score. But you know what? I wrote on this on Football by Football a year ago. I went back and looked at average scoring since, since the, uh, the illegal contact thing had come into play. And the, the point change cumulatively is like a point a game. I think it's a point a game per team or maybe a point total. I don't, I don't recall, but it has not moved that much. And surprisingly so. I was going to make a case for it if it had only been a field goal or more and say, hey, you really don't need those three it was surprisingly low. So to me, all it does is just sort of screw with the integrity of the game where you start gifting, gifting yardage or either putting conflicts in, in the minds of, of the old guys with the flags because they may have called that in the middle of the second quarter and they won't call it at the end of the game. And, and it, it, you bring up another excellent point that you just can't get inside of a dude's head. But if he saw that illegal hands of the face at the front end of it, did that thought go through his mind? You know, I'm not going to call that now. You know, if I do, it's going to just restart this play and let's just let them play. And then you see the thing at the end and you do you, I think, naturally have that thought. Shit, I just let one go. I got to let this too, you know, or I'm a hypocrite because I didn't call the other one. So you don't want to have those kind of conflicts in your head. But we know they happen because you can look at the crew to crew throughout the NFL and they throw demonstrably different amounts of flags. There's vol- there's volume differences from crew to crew. So, you know, they're making decisions that the other guys aren't. It's not because one team violates at three times rate it's because dudes just don't throw them or throw too many more of them so i think we got an officiating problem in the league and i think it's part of part of it is just because the the, the rules put them in a really bad spot um 
Uh, one other thought I had though here on this, and it was uh, Sean Payton in, in New Orleans brought up the thought, and he's the one that initiated a lot of the conversation about making them re- reviewable that you referenced there, Brady. And in their game against Carolina with the Saints, there was actually uh, a possession that I, I believe it was three, uh, maybe two of these pass interference calls that basically accounted for the the length of the <laughs> They basically got one drive in penalties and then, then punched in at a time where Carolina came roaring back to make it close there at the end. And, and Peyton was like, hey, man, and they, you know, his view anyways is they were some bogus calls. So he's like, we cannot be giving away real estate for free and not have the opportunity to question it when we can question other stuff. So I think you did kind of touch on that, but uh, just just making it reviewable, you know, holding aside the whole spot foul thing, I don't know if we could get the competition committee to agree with you and I, uh, but just the reviewable portion of it, how would how, just sort of nuts and bolts? How would that work? Say you win on one. Say that you know you 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 challenge. Uh, are you allowed to continue to challenge pass interferences until you get one wrong and then lose the challenge? How would you do that? Uh, I think you would just make it like any other um, you know challenge that we that we see right now in the NFL, where if if you're wrong, right, then. You know, you you lose you know that challenge. You know, if you get three a game, then you then you lose that one. If you're right, then you maintain the ability to still challenge another call. But I, I don't feel like they should, you know, corner you into having only many, there are only so many you know challenges per a specific type of review. I think if you if you're a head coach and you have uh, you know however many number of challenges, you're able to utilize those for whatever you want to try to challenge. I mean, it's gonna be hard, obviously, to dictate the plays that you feel like change the momentum of, momentum of a game. But I think most pass interference. Given that, you know, when do they occur? Typically third down red zone, right? Because in the red zone, it's a smaller field, tighter coverage. And on third down, you get traditionally more man-to-man tighter coverage as teams are pressuring. So um, I think that's when they typically occur the most. And I think because of that, there are situational plays that impact the game more so than ever. So I don't think you can limit them just one a game and based on that, whether they make it right or wrong. The, The other element to this too, Matt, is I think it's the fact that, look, when you put these officials you know, kind of on the line, you make this kind of sort of this sort of call reviewable. I think it makes them more accountable because now all of a sudden there's going right. to be a record of these guys and, and how many times that, you know, plays were challenged, reviewed, and overturned. So, you know, when they make a pass interference call, they better be right. They better be on top of, of what's taking place. Uh, I, I think the biggest thing is, you know, how do you go about if you have a challenge, right? And let's say you want to challenge that last play that there was – it wasn't called pass interference, right? Because – the only logical way it makes sense is to say I can challenge whether that play was pass interference, meaning that it was called and right. flagged on the play. Because if you go the other route, right, let's say you have, you're, you're, on, you're on offense, you have the ball, and you're trying to challenge whether or not there was pass interference on that play, you would, you would have to say, all right, then we're making the rule so you hone in on where the football went. Otherwise, you're kind of opening up this whole can of worms where, well, what happens if there was defensive holding or pass interference on another side? Uh, or on another receiver during that play because uh, we have replays. Right. So, you know, how do we go about, you know, implementing it so it's effective, but also limiting it so it doesn't, you know, have this all-encompassing eye-in-the-sky type impact where now you're looking at every single thing that happened over the course of a play and whether or not there's pass interference uh, on any of the five eligible wide receivers or, excuse me, receivers that could catch the football. So um, in that case, you'd have to be very specific about how you want to implement the rule and how you're going to go about enforcing it. Well, I think there's a really easy answer to that, Brady. I mean, my view would be this, uh, th- and I understand the fear from the NFL's 
point of view that they don't want that can of worms open because why? Because they've created a rule book with so many, you know, dozens and dozens of ways to create an infraction. If, if the rules themselves were far more rigid and it was only the really over the top stuff that warranted a flag, like literally holding the arm, you know, not, not pushing and shoving, not contacting each other, something where there's something that is just a materially preventing you from doing it. And I would actually take out personally the, the hands of the face stuff. I, I think it was in part, you know, the old uh, 70s head slap thing, which is different. You know, if you're, you're, you're taking a big swing and punching the side of an ear hole kind of thing, that, that can be dangerous. But, you know, putting a hand in a guy's face mask, I don't have a problem with that at all. Nobody gets hurt from that. I mean, you're, you're not going you're not gonna to get injured. I mean, and I, now, again, I'd say that's different than grasping a face mask and turning it, you know, re- wrenching it around. But touching someone's head, even if you punch, you know, even you push forward with an open hand, nobody gets hurt from that. It's ridiculous. It's a piece of steel and fireballs. So I guess I, I think the NFL needs to get away from legislating on what looks bad and what players realize is bad. And if that's the case and you only have, you know five or six ways to commit a foul then they're not so worried about it opening it up because it's really the only very serious stuff that could draw one but because you know like you say they look at every single place in the field and you have things like illegal contact well anyone touching anyone might be up for sale you know for a flag and that's the problem i think it's because they created so many layers that they they don't want people looking at how much their rule book actually isn't followed or, or is it couldn't be followed couldn't possibly be followed there'd be infractions on play so i think the answer to that is simplify the whole damn thing so that you've the the, the threshold for committing the foul is really high and then if it happens well then yeah give them the damn flag but you know that's 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 kind of my take on that so let's move on here i wanted to kind of jump into the next thing uh this will be uh this will be kind of the uh I don't know, coup d'etat here of this kind of situation. Well, you touched on the notion of accountability, and it actually sort of hits on in this particular game because it's Tony Corrente's crew. You know, and I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, or if it's just I haven't been tracking them or grading them or anything like that, like we do with teams. But crew is the one that blew that, and and to sort of uh, the the call at the end of the Seahawks Atlanta game. To refresh people's memory, that's the same crew that did not get the batting call at the end of the Lions-Seahawks uh, game. Uh, I believe that was a year ago, or maybe it was two years ago. But the the illegal batting uh, by, I think it was K.J. Wright or whatever, at the back of the end zone where they didn't call the batting, and it otherwise would have uh, been a win for Detroit. Detroit would have had home field. Instead, Detroit, I think, traveled to uh, Arizona or something like that and ended up losing uh, early in the playoffs. So it was something you know, directly affected the outcome of the game, directly affected the playoffs. Now you have the same crew screwing up again. So you you started to touch on this in your last response, but how do you hold uh, officials accountable? How logistically would it work, say, for this week? Say, Corrente's crew blew it last week. Uh, as we've seen it thus far with the NFL, the way they handle these things, they sort of take you out of prime time if you do bad. You're not going to lose a job. They don't have anyone another you know, substitute crew to put in. They just don't give you the Monday night game or they don't give you the Thursday. They, they go have you do a Jags game at one o'clock on, you know, on regional television. So how would you hold them accountable when there are issues like this? That's the toughest question to answer, Matt, because if you think about it, um, you said, you know, they take them off prime time. Well, yeah, that sucks because I'm sure they get excited to do prime time, uh, but maybe they don't want the extra exposure. They don't want Chris <laughs> right, right. John Gruden talking about them uh, and their bad call right. the week before and highlighting it. So uh, maybe they're actually right. happy they still get to work and still get paid. Uh, I think, look, you hit them in the wallet. Sure. You, you find them. You, you take away pay. You, I mean, look, as much as these guys probably love what they do, 
I'm sure at the same time, they're also pleased with whatever payment they're making from being an official at the NFL level. So what do you do? You, you take some money out of their pockets. And, and it, look, the hard part is you, you could sit there and say, all right, well, we'll just rotate him in or we'll elevate someone else from another crew. Look, there's chemistry amongst these officials as far as their communication and how they handle games. That's why I think you see some crews are better than others. Some have been working together longer and they've got a better communication standard between each other and in what, how they see things and when they see things and how they communicate, discuss certain calls. So um, that's one thing you don't want to break up is that continuity that they're building along the course of a season. But I think the other element to all this too is, I mean, look, we've seen what happens when the replacement refs get in there. It's a disaster. <laughs> I mean, you talk about player right. safety. I mean, I mean, it's not safe for anyone to be out there. Maybe not even the officials themselves, based on how many times they used to, they would get in the way uh, with those replacement officials. So that's the hard part. Is it's not like you can just suspend them either and and completely take them yeah. off of a game from doing it and suspend them without pay because because the next guy you bring in, he's not going to be able to at least you know replace what, who was formerly there. So. I personally feel like you find them and you still make them work and maybe you take them off of a, a nationally televised game. But I think anytime you hit them in the pockets, um, yeah, that's always going to hurt someone. I mean, that's one of the best deterrents that the NFL has as far as trying to, you know, get players to act a, a certain way and make sure that they're in their bed during bed check when, you know, you're on a road right. trip or something like that. Well, the oddball thing about this too, Brady, and it, it's something that, you know, for people out there are trying to solve this puzzle. They're trying to figure out why in the world are ratings down and everyone's got a theory and there's some are plausible. I think or some are less plausible, but you know, if, if I think game flow affects it a little bit, I think maybe not so much whether or not you choose to watch, but I think if you start watching a bad game, there's a lot of interruptions there might be just the more human nature thing to change the channel. And the reason I bring that up is sort of on that notion of, you know, trying to judge a crew and you're saying, Hey, take money from their pocket. Uh, be, I think I, I really like that idea for this reason, because they have to know, I mean, intuitively they understand that their choice of throwing that flag, if they're right on it, actually in a lot of the instances for several flags, the unsportsman's like stuff, the personal stuff, the, you know, hands of the face can get you 10 grand, 86, five, whatever the hell it is, whatever you have to go look at the schedule, something that they determine to be unsafe or whatever uh, can take money from someone. And, and I like that idea that they have to know they're right or they don't throw it because if they're wrong, they'll lose the money. I love that. I mean, because I think it's, it's non-interventionalist. I think it, it shows that the reason the officials are there is to monitor play, but not to affect it. And I think that's a much more reasonable role for them to have. As it is now, you can turn on a game, and if you catch the wrong crew, uh, Pete Morelli's one of the crews here. Is, you know, I'm covering games here for the Patriots. I see Pete's crew. I see, uh, you know... Uh, Smediums, whatever that guy is, the the guy that does the curls. What, what's that dude's name? Uh, Ed Hockley. Uh, damn it. Ed Hockley, yeah. I see Pete Morelli's crew. Uh, I see Ed Hockley. It's something as an analyst or someone who's, you know, just going to report on the game and do halftime and postgame shows. I see those dudes' name at the bottom, and I go, oh, my God, this is going to be one of those games where – tack on an extra 30 minutes it's going to be longer there's going to be interruptions there's going to be eye rolls there's going to be times where you almost have to do like a side calculation on your on your box score of how many gifted possessions or gifted points or or questionable extensions of series there are you know and that's that's it's, it's a shame I, I hate that our game has sort of turned that way but it comes from the top i mean these guys want that uh roger goodell was the commissioner was uh was interviewed down at the owners meeting in houston this week and 
you know, there was sort of a, a, a snide question from the, the, the media. I loved it, but they were sort of saying, you know, why, why allow these, these penalties to happen for celebrations? And, and he went into his spiel about sportsmanship and being a pro and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know what? Jumping up and down in the end zone and shooting a fake arrow, bow and arrow, or doing these things is not poor sportsmanship. It's only poor, in my view, it's it's poor sportsmanship in the view of about handful of these old men that that happen to work for the NFL, and that's it. So it's just sort of their version of it, and and they're willing to let that change games. So it's really hard to sort of fight back against this stuff because you're, you're dealing with officials who are being strictly ruled upon. You know, go ahead and change the outcome of the game. Just make sure that none of these guys celebrate in a way we don't like and it's like wow dude you're really you're really willing to screw up the outcomes in our games off that I mean, gosh why how how did you get in charge of this stuff but yeah you know, it's really it's really hard for me to get by that but rant over uh let's uh let's transition to another uh another little spot here that i think has been a hot topic in part because it was really a dominant off-season story uh ryan fitzpatrick right up to the last minute are they going to keep him are they going to let him go or are they going to resign him is he going to sit home all off-season just show up in training camp are the Jets going to relent and finally like, pay the guy what he's worth based upon the performance he had a year ago? It's been real bad for him this year, and, and Ryan had had pretty up-and-down start and then a couple really blow-up games, and now they've seeded the job to Geno Smith. So uh, I'm curious just to put on your GM hat. We can both do this and 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 look at – I think you know what you have in Geno. I mean, you've, you've, he's gotten extended looks in the past, but now he's going to sort of get an opportunity to, to drive this out. Bryce Petty is on that roster guy coming off a shoulder injury, just recently returned to practice anyway. So there's no way in God's green earth he was going to be able to, to be the fill-in guy at this moment. And you got Christian Hackenberg, who maybe some think is a future. He's a, a mid, mid-round investment kind of thing. Um, how do you manage that situation as both a GM who wants to see some success here and a coach that's, that's now a little bit under fire, and, which is a little surprisingly so if you'd look back a few weeks? It's it's interesting. I mean, I've broken this down in so many different ways, Matt. So, first off, they've already mismanaged this situation, and it's the fact that they carried four quarterbacks on their active roster. Look, right. the second that Ryan Fitzpatrick was signed, they should have either released or tried to trade Geno Smith for whatever they could get for him. And the simple fact of the matter is it's because both are free agents after this year. So what is the point of keeping Geno Smith on the roster – if you don't feel like he could be your starter and he was the guy to begin the season and give you the best chance to win. Because otherwise, you've essentially already said, as far as looking into the future, that you drafted Bryce Petty in, what, the fourth round a couple right. of years ago. You drafted Christian Hackenberg in the second round out of Penn State this year. If that's the case, then what's yeah. the future? What's the point of keeping Geno Smith on the roster? And, and really, when you look exactly. at Ryan Fitzpatrick, he signs a one-year deal that is essentially there – for him to see if he can replicate what he did last year. If he can't, then he's essentially, you know, just holding that, that place for one of those younger quarterbacks to eventually be the guy. So my, my whole understanding to all this is it doesn't make sense that you keep Geno Smith on the roster at all at this point. Now, if they feel like they still have enough time to make a run and get into the playoffs, uh, you look, maybe after six weeks, that's correct. Uh, but they're one in five. They have a lot of ground to cover. They're not going to compete in the NFC East. I mean, I don't even know if they'll be able to catch up to Buffalo who's at four and two right now. And then you look Crazy, at the rest yeah. of the AFC playoff picture and it's like the AFC West is as competitive as it gets. I mean, 
there might end up being three teams from the AFC West, their division leader, the winner, and then also two other teams, Oakland and Kansas City or Denver, whoever it gets spliced up, then end up making the playoffs. I kind of thought that might be the AFC North, but it looks like the way with the Ben Roethlisberger injury and Baltimore kind of struggling a bit and Cincinnati really struggling, that it actually might be the AFC West this year. Uh, But that being the case, you know, let's just go back to and and look at their first six weeks, right? Because they make a quarterback change. And in my mind, I looked at their schedule before the season and said two and four. I mean, the Jets are a good team. They have good talent. But four of their first six games were on the road. Okay, we know how big home field advantage is in the NFL. (laughs) Home teams last week, Matt, were 12 and three. So there's just one stat to throw at you based on last week's games. 12 and three home teams. So we know how big of a stat that is. So for that reason alone, I was was sitting there thinking, ah, they'll probably be two and four. Another reason why? Well, five of their six teams were playoff teams last year. And here's another reason. Mm. Even this year, even looking at those six weeks, those six teams, there's only one team that has below a 500 record, and that's Cincinnati. And they haven't even gotten Tyler Eifert back as one of their key (laughs) components. So you're looking at their schedule, and you're saying, one in five isn't that far off from probably what they're going to be. But the fact of the matter is, Ryan Fitzpatrick played bad enough versus Kansas City, and then in consecutive weeks where he threw six interceptions, and then the next week he throws, what, three interceptions? So the problem is, you know, mm-hmm. he hasn't played well, but when you look at this Jets team, they're 21st in total offense. They're 24th in total defense. Their defense is playing worse than their offense. Their, off- their defense has actually put them into positions where they're not only not running the football, but they're playing from behind. So they're largely a one-dimensional team that's played without Eric Decker, the number two wide receiver, for half those games. Yeah. So that being the case, what do you expect him to do? He's got to take chances. He's got to force the ball down the field. Because if you're a Jets fan, would you rather just him hand the football off or would you rather him dink and dunk when they're down 28-3 to to the Arizona Cardinals? I mean, you want him to take chances. You want him to stretch the field. That's the position that he's in right now. And that's basically what they did last year when they had a bunch of success. Unfortunately, their defense isn't playing as good as they were last year. So, you know, that being the case – Ryan Fitzpatrick was in a tough position. I think he's kind of taking the fall for, for a lot of their issues that they've got on defense because you can't make one change on defense that's going to, one, calm down the media there in New York or, or that's going to look like you've done enough to be able to, to do anything anyway. So, so they go to Geno Smith. He'll get a few weeks. If things don't go well, then they move on into experimental mode and they see what they have in Bryce Petty and Christian Hackenberg. But, so, so now it actually leads me to say this. You know, to me, because Ryan Fitzpatrick's ceiling was Let's say it's 31 touchdowns, 15 interceptions. We've seen him do that. You go back to Geno Smith. His best year, he's thrown 13 touchdown passes. That was in 2014. Now, granted, he didn't have a whole lot to throw to that year. I actually think he played decently well, given the struggles that they had and the fact that everyone knew Rex Ryan was out in 2014. But when you compare the two quarterbacks, right, Geno Smith, 2014, his best season. Ryan Fitzpatrick, his best season, 2015. You look at the roster then of the Jets. What was the difference between 2014 and 2015? There's literally three different teams in the roster for the Jets. <laughs> Brandon Marshall, Todd Bowles as head coach, and Ryan Fitzpatrick. Yeah, Antonio Cromartie was there as well, and I think he stepped up and played yeah, around 2015. Couple things, but, yeah. but, but the biggest difference maker was, were those three guys, and, and that, that's a team that in 2014 went from 4-12 and to the Jets being 10-6 and, and nearly making the playoffs. So, Look, Fitzpatrick gave him the best chance to, to start the season to win. I think he still would if he was playing right now. So, really, this to me is just a change for change's sake. And the crazy thing now is based on everything I just said, Matt, 
at this point, what's the point of keeping Ryan Fitzpatrick on the roster? Why wouldn't you just release him or try True. to trade him if you can to the Pittsburgh Steelers to get some sort of value if possible since they need a quarterback? Right. And, and why not try to get something on defense to help yourself out or get a future draft pick? So it sounds bizarre that I'm saying that after everything I just said, but that's the reality is, is neither Ryan Fitzpatrick or, or Gito Smith are most likely going to be on this roster next year. Uh, and, and, that, and that's unfortunately the situation that Jets put themselves in, and they did that before the season even started. Right, and I, I, you – so what I would say, beyond even the mistake they make with four, I think part of why they had to make the nah, – not had, I not have done I still would have figured out three. You got to do your evaluation internally of what you got and make a call. But I think in part why they backed themselves into that four deal is because they went along. Ryan didn't get to have a full camp. Ryan didn't get to have – or offseason anyway. He didn't get to have a, a full offseason with these dudes and work and get better. And, you know, 31 of the other guys around the league did. And I think for a guy who historically has been an extremely up and down, a little careless with the ball kind of guy, a gunslinger, right? He's had some really good years. He's had some other years where he lets it go too often. And I think in those kind of those with those kind of personalities, it really really is a good idea to, to let them be with his people. Let make sure the relationships are high and they don't revert back into those bad habits. He's probably the one guy, even though he's older and experienced and all that stuff, that would have really benefited by by working with Devin Smith a little more. You know, by working with the tight end group a little bit more. By you know getting just advancing the relationship a little bit more with those two guys, even though they had one nice year together. I think there was a lot of feeling in the room that we all love Ryan, bring Ryan back, and we'll just pick up where we left off. And that kind of bit him in the ass. Oftentimes the NFL does not work that way and I'll I'll try this analogy I I think it's a little bit uh, similar to what you're talking about with this notion of keeping four but reminds me a little bit of poker you know you get the flop you get your first three cards and it reminds me of the dude that'll continue to chase a straight instead of just dropping the three and getting a hand for the turn you know it's like you've got a two a three and a four instead of just giving them back and trying to start over and actually get a, you get two more chances to get something valuable. They stick with things that, as you're saying, they know aren't going to be the answer. Like, why keep hanging on to cards that it's it's a hope and a prayer that you'll get something from them? Three rookie contracts, Geno, for relatively high picks, Geno Smith and uh, the other two two guys. So uh, it's it just it makes no sense. It's really really bad management. And uh, you know they're coming off the stuff with Idzik and and Tannenbaum and all that where they were going to have better management. It was just it wasn't going to be like that anymore. And and uh, they seem to be making a lot of silly mistakes that cost them, especially when you look on the defensive side of the ball. As as banged up as that sec- secondary was, you telling me you couldn't use another veteran uh, defensive back of some sort, some some sort of piece of insurance that would have helped as they were sort of going through that transition. Man, I don't see it, but uh, the Jets just did Jets things again. And it's too bad because I think, you know, you got a surprise performance from Matt Forte. I don't think people were expecting him to to perform as well as he has as an older back. He's been great. Uh, So you had a nice addition. You let Chris Ivory go, but he got himself injured down in Jacksonville. So he hasn't been a huge contributor. So there, there were re- there's reasons to believe that in the absence of Decker's injury, the thing could have still had the board, but you handicapped yourself by that game of chicken throughout the offseason and then ultimately making a decision to handicap your roster by one. Not not, not good ball. Uh, one final thought here. We'll, we'll sort of transition a little bit out of the show. We have to, have to talk about it. Uh, thank you, people out there who have been checking out the web, new website, footballbyfootball.com. You've really been hitting up our videos really heavy. We appreciate that. Almost 30,000 people on this perfect video that I made earlier in the week. And it has been one of the hot topics, maybe 
because I live in the fishbowl up here, maybe more so than other places. But um, as a linebacker, I've kind of already made my, my, my thoughts known on that, so I don't need to rant on it much more. You can always go watch that video on our YouTube channel or the YouTube channel, excuse me, or on footballbyfootball.com. But I, I simply pinpointed that play as someone as a linebacker, someone who's a very similar size. I'm taller than, than perfect, but I weigh 250. So I know exactly what it feels like to hit a six, seven tight end. My time in the league, it was Aaron Kinney. It's maybe Kyle Brady. It's, uh, uh, you know, maybe Shockey's a little lighter than that. But the taller guys, the big guys, what it's like to hit a tight end. And I've never, ever in my life seen another tie, another linebacker that's two, not a 220 guy that's more safety body type that might be worried about the weight discrepancy. I have never, ever seen one uh, zone drop from five-yard away uh, on a pump fake where I know he was not taken by the fake take three full strides and dive at the back of a dude's legs. It's just, it's just coward. And I'm not calling Vin, uh, perfect a coward. I'm saying the act he did was cowardly. I know he's not a coward because you watch the other plays and he's flying in the hammerhead against a 320 pound guard. So he's a thumper. He's a guy who can't hit, loves to hit. Uh, but on those moments, he was a coward. He was a snake. He, he went on the ground. And I just know in a linebacker room, linebackers look at those guys with side eye they look at them like man that was that was a post move why are you doing that you're better than that and and you know you lose you, you lose respect for a guy but i was just curious because i got a thrower on the line do you remember any situation where one of your guys kind of got hung out to dry or you know just was standing and took a shot across the back of the knees or something that was so grabbed your attention like wow why do you get away with that yeah, actually, um, we were playing the Pittsburgh Steelers. I believe this was in the wild card round of the playoffs in, in 2011. Yeah, 2011 for the Denver Broncos versus the Steelers. We had, uh, we had won the AFC West um, that year. We had we'd won out in a tiebreaker, I believe, with the Oakland Raiders. But anyways, uh, at one point in the game, they had brought a zone blitz, and Tim had thrown the football – uh, towards Eric Decker. I, I believe it was this year. It might have been actually 2010 that I think about because we played Pittsburgh both years. But nevertheless, the, the player that was involved was James Harrison. He zone dropped deep enough where once he read the eyes of the quarterback, seeing him come across, he immediately went low, which um, I'm looking at him saying, I mean, James Harrison's what, every bit of 280, 290? I mean, he's a jacked up dude. Uh, and if you think about that hit window uh, above the knees, below the shoulders um you're, you're sitting there saying to yourself like i mean it wasn't even a, i don't believe it was a legal hit and and the wide receiver's defenseless he's coming across the field and he basically goes to look him up and tee him up and, and take him out uh, by the legs like right around the kneecaps which again an extremely dirty play from a player that i don't know that he has the same history necessarily as montez perfect but you know when i looked at the play i i, I mean there's guys on the sidelines who were ready to go out in the field and try to get in a fight with James Harrison. Not that that's necessarily a smart idea, but that being said, um, it was one of the dirtiest things that I've ever seen. I think you, you lose a lot of respect for a guy, not only as a player, but really a human being, right? I mean, because I think most players, when they're on the field together, they understand what the game is about, the competition is about. But when you go to those sorts of lengths, it just seems desperate. And especially for a guy, too, who, you know, like I said, I mean, he's a big guy. It's not like he could have hit within that hit window and be able to make a proper form tackle on a wide receiver that wouldn't have been able to juke or get out of the way because of the timing of the play, uh, which makes me think more that it was maybe T Tim Tebow, not Kyle Orton, because I think Kyle Orton would have got him the ball a lot sooner. I wouldn't set him up for that hit. Uh, so, so that being said, it's like, 
you know, you're sitting there watching that play and thinking with disgust for that player. But I always wonder, too, like I've never played with a guy who's dirty like that. So I always wonder how other guys in the locker room perceive Vontez Perfect or a James Harrison when they make dirty plays like that. It's almost similar to like the type of guy that's taking PEDs. After he gets off the suspension, he comes back. Um, you know, I've never been around a player who has popped for that as well. So I'm not sure how that would be, but I, I think you kind of look at them and just, you know, a bit skeptical of, of who they are as a person. Do you believe anything they really ever say? Uh, and, and you look at them with, with a sense of, you know, the NFL is a, a league where there's a good chance you're probably going to play for more than one team. So if that's the case and I'm playing against them, is he going to do that to me now? So a lot of things kind of run through your head as you're looking at that play by Vontez Perfect. And, I mean, look, you can, I think you've done a tremendous job of breaking it down on footballbyfootball.com on our website. So for any of those listening who haven't seen it, please go and check it out. And one thing that um, you note is everything, all, all the, the context that goes into a player in Perfect's situation. That hit. My thing is, what about the player behind Bennett? What, is it all of a, was that Pac-Man, I believe, or I forget who was covering him at yeah. the moment, but did he, did he not yeah. bite on the pump fake? It, all of a sudden, exactly. like Vontez Perfect bites so hard on the pump fake, but the player behind him doesn't? It doesn't seem to make exactly. a whole lot of sense, uh, considering that you would need to tackle him in the way that he did, uh, even based on the, the player that was behind uh, Bennett, who was sitting there. I mean, he didn't even react in the same way. So it's a bit <laughs> baffling to Look. me to think that the NFL could not, not only not suspend him given his history, but not even sign him. I mean, I went by and looked at the like, Garrett Blunt oh, stomp, and I actually thought that was a little bit more ambiguous than, than the Bennett hit because right. the Bennett thing's out totally. in the open. It's Absolutely. so clear and obvious. The stomp, it looks like he, you know, he's just kind of walking, picks his leg up high, gets it down. I couldn't even tell if it was Blunt's leg or not. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you uh, 100% on the, the, the surprise. And I was tweeting about it before, and I was like, I, but I could feel it happening because when I saw the news release of the stop, I'm like, you know what? They're, gonna, they're going to react as if that is highly dangerous to a person, and it's not. I, I mean, I, let's put it this way. If, if Albert Hainsworth stomps on your face, maybe, yes. You know, if he happens to catch your knee and a – a big heavy stomp and a guy weighs 330. Yeah, you can maybe tear something up that way. But man, I've been stepped on so many hundreds of times in my life and cleat marks and at the bottom of piles and wedges. And, you know, come on. It breaks the skin. It gives you a hard bone bruise. It can be painful. It can last for a while. But getting stomped on is nowhere near, nowhere near getting the, the back of your leg dove and through, dove, is dove, no, dove, dove, dove through because you can, uh, you'll tear a ligament. I mean, the, the likelihood of the reason uh, Mart, uh, Martellus Bennett is not out for the season right, right now is it was just fortunate that he was picking his cleat up right at that moment. It didn't, it didn't catch. He is, he was transitioning his weight from one side to the other. So as he picked that cleat up, it didn't catch. If his foot had been planted, if it had been a fraction of a second different, he would be out for right now, out for nine months. And for my, and my view is not, you know, if you shoot a gun at someone's head and you miss, it doesn't matter. It's murder. You know, it's attempted murder shouldn't really be different just because you failed at what you were trying. I mean, I, that's what I think they're doing here. If Martellus Bennett's leg was shredded right now, uh, I don't think there's any question Vontez Burfecht would have been uh, suspended. None. 
And that to me speaks directly to integrity. They, they, they don't, they have an excuse that they don't have to do it uh, because um, look, he's fine. And maybe they buy in some dumb excuse that he, that he got faked out. No, he took three strides from a standstill. He dove at the back of a knee. No linebacker does that. And, and I'll say this not in defense of James Harrison. And I'm not questioning your take on the hit. Cause I'm not, a, I'm not familiar with it, but the thing I remember that a lot of people look at with James Harrison is, is the shots. to the, And I have less of a problem with that. And I know that's, that's not a popular view with the NFL, but I mean, I, I, with the new concussion stuff and I get it, that maybe I'm a little more there because he was looked at as a headhunter. Um, and because, so I'm familiar with his, his, his sort of tag as a dirty player is more of the hits to people's heads. It does kind of surprise me that he would go low on someone crossing in his face because, and I guess the only thing I can think of, because I actually do think of him as a pretty tough dude. Uh, I have a pretty good healthy respect for him as a player but i would be surprised that he would go low and i guess the only thing in my head that, that might make him do that is because he kept getting fined for hitting in the head but i say that and i don't want anyone to sort of conflate that situation with anything with because people started to say that said hey he has to go low the league find you when you go high no that's nonsense listen the guy's six seven he was hitting he was in a, a completely not threatening posture he was just standing there when you hit a six seven guy and, and perfect's not tall Six one. He has all the space in the world to hit the guy. He, he's upright. He could have hit him in half a dozen uh, spots where he could have sort of been an entry point for contact. It's it's insane to, to say that that was an issue. But that's what people who don't play football should really understand. There's a dramatic difference between hitting guys who are coming towards you, hitting guys who are you know out in space low, cut tackling. Those are all dramatically different things than diving through a back of someone's leg who's just standing there. So it's just one of the filthiest things that I can think of doing. And, you know, if it, you know, if I was out there, I don't have the restraint of some people. I'd be fighting them. Uh, I just, I just think it's a chicken shit kind of thing. But anyway, so uh, we're going to kind of kick out of the show and I just wanted to, we went a little long today, but I did want to kind of catch your take on, on game this week and sort of your 32nd. What are you going to be watching? What's the one that's sort of piquing your interest the most? Uh, as far as the NFL, uh, it, it's tough for me. I think honestly, it's this Thursday night game because coming into the season, wow. the two teams that I that I really thought um, would have an opportunity at, at going to the Super Bowl, at least out of the NFC, uh, was Seattle and Green Bay, uh, based on everything they had coming back and all of that. And right now, if you're going to compare those two teams, I mean, the Seattle Seahawks are, are light years away from I feel like, feel like where the Green Bay Packers are right now, and. It's been well documented at this point, the struggles that Aaron Rodgers has had as far as passing and all of that. I mean, heck, people are even now, now comparing Brian Hoyer and his stats compared to Aaron Rodgers over, like, the last 12 games that he's played. Right. I mean, and uh, don't get me wrong. I don't want to take anything away from what Hoyer's done the past four games. Over 300 yards, six touchdowns, no interceptions. He's, he's played really well. Played but better than Jay. That being said, <laughs> right. they, they, they've only got one win. So, uh, I think he's been impressive, right. but uh, at the same time, I mean, look, Aaron Rodgers and the Packers have a legitimate shot of getting the Super Bowl. They're not healthy in the secondary tonight, so I'll be curious to see if that trend continues for Hoyer, if he can take advantage of things in the passing game. Eddie Lacy now is on IR. You look at their running back situation. Know, they just trade for Niall Davis. Think about this. Niall Davis is going to be out. He's dealing with concussion <laughs> symptoms, and it's a short week. He just got there. Yeah. I don't even think he's going to play. So. You are going to see Don Jackson, who they're elevating from the practice squad. He's going to play yep. no live reps before, so this will be interesting. And then you're going to see Tyron. I Montgomery, believe James Stark. I believe. Ja- am I right? I was going to say, am I right that James Starks went on IR as well? I believe he did. I think I know that through. Uh, yeah, fantasy. I believe so. <laughs> that's, that's why they're in this predicament. 
So yeah. you know, you're looking at you're, you might you might see Randall Cobb as well. Cobb's dealing with a lingering back injury though, so we'll see. But they have used him from time to time back there. But it could be Don Jackson and Tom Montgomery basically playing playing running back, and then uh, but, but look. The matchup here is the secondary for the Bears. They might go five wide the entire game and let Rodgers just pick them apart. And, and that would probably be exactly what the doctor ordered, given the fact that Rodgers has kind of struggled. Get these guys into a rhythm. Get them going again. You know, look, their defense hasn't been that bad. I mean, they had the number one rush defense up until a week ago when they played the Dallas Cowboys. I think that probably changed and skewed their stats a little bit. But they're, they're, you know, their secondary has been okay. You know, the issue is they haven't got much pressure on the quarterback. You know, with Aaron Rodgers' struggles, hmm. All of a sudden, no one's talking about Clay Matthews and the struggles that he's had. He's kind of flown under the radar, especially considering I thought coming in this year, they moved him from middle linebacker back to, the, to being an edge rusher and outside linebacker. So I was like, all right, this is going to be great. Again, he's opposite of Julius Peppers. This should be huge. And has not had the impact that I think, uh, I, I at least I anticipated it having. So this is a great opportunity for them to get back on track. And, and I'm really looking to see what the Packers can do tonight. So I'll be called the homer for going here, but I still, I actually do believe the most intriguing game of the week, uh, at least especially on the AFC side of the draw, is this Patriots-Steelers game, and that's even without Ben Roethlisberger. Now, I, we understand Big Ben's down a while, had a meniscus surgery, and I, I'll say this. I think you would be unwise as a New England fan to dismiss, dismiss them out of hand because Pittsburgh is a pretty stable organization. Uh, I think 13-10 and 10, uh, in non-Ben games in the recent past, uh, the Vic stuff and Landry Jones sort of cumulatively there. They've been able to scratch and win, I think, in part because it's a usually a pretty relative and, and talent-laden roster, and they're not someone who – a team that really rides the, the wave as much, which – doesn't seem accurate the way they got blown away by the Eagles early this year and the play they just the stinker they just dropped in Miami, giving up 200 rushing yards on the ground to Jay Ajayi, who've never had a 100-yard game. So all of a sudden they have been a little bit of a volatile team. But I just I'm a little leery, and I think it's more of a lesson from from home here that people should not look past. There's six or seven rate organizations in the NFL that there are not. Of course they're not going to be the same with Big Ben. I get that. I'm not. I'm not trying to make that case. I'm just saying uh, it's not. It's not the Colts. It's not the Colts where, uh, with Andrew Luck, we think we're a playoff team. Without him, we're we're looking for the first overall pick. It's not that kind of stuff. Not the old Peyton Manning stuff. They're not that dependent on the one dude, even as excellent as he is. So it's going to be an interesting game, I think, for reasons of game planning. It'll be fun to watch. How you? How do you? Uh, incorporate Antonio Brown, uh, you maybe go to some two-back stuff, which the, the, the most intriguing thing to me, just straight X's and O's looking at that offense, is saying, hey, man, we may not have the firepower at the quarterback position, but we still got like three good, legitimate one-on-one uh, -on -one mismatches uh, with, with D'Angelo Williams, Le'Veon Bell, and Antonio Brown. Any of the three can win one-on-one. -on -one. We'll smoke their one-on-one -on -one, uh, matchup and, uh, in most cases. Uh, and you've got, you know, you've got uh, – uh, Jamie Collins, who we don't know yet as we're recording the show, if he can play. Jamie would, would be one of those eliminators, a guy that could maybe potentially match up space against one of those two backs and make things a little easier. But if you don't have him and you're looking at younger, less experienced guys that are not nearly as athletic, you got a super mismatch by going two backs, you know, maybe using those guys as wide receivers and making them from a little easier throws for Landry. So I, I still say the, the Patriots are going to win this uh, pretty big. But I just don't think it's the kind of game where, you know, you go ahead and chalk it up and start looking ahead to the Bills, which would be next week for the Patriots, which is one of the surprise teams in the league. So we'll look heavier at that one next week. But uh, that is going to be all for this show. Brady, what you got going on this weekend? I'm actually calling the Oklahoma 
at Texas Tech game. So Oklahoma's trying to continue their run in the Big 12 and see if they can win the Big 12. And it'll be interesting to see at that point if they can make it in the college football playoff because they'd be sitting there at the ripe old spot, I believe, of what, uh, 10-2? Having lost to Houston and Ohio State, though, so they might need some help. They might need Houston to lose one more. And they actually will def- well, they'll definitely need Ohio State to lose to Michigan. But even then, I'll be curious to see if it's enough as a conference champion, if they can, would still leapfrog over Ohio State, uh, if it's possibly the Big Ten to get two teams in, depending on how the Pac-12 shakes out. So should be interesting, but uh, nonetheless, a very good Oklahoma team taking on a prolific offense in Texas Tech. So as I say, buddy, you're going to get to see some fireworks. <laughs> so enjoy that. It's classic uh, <laughs> New classic. Uh, you can't say classic because that's Big A, but it's like new classic Big 12. At least around these parts, people say Big 12, and we think non-existent defense and crazy high-scoring offensive games. So I don't know if that's inaccurate, but that's that's the bias and that's the perception. So have a it's good time. Uh, awesome insight. and yeah, Pretty accurate. Okay, good. Have a great weekend, pal. We'll see you next week. Take care. That is all for this week's In the Game podcast. Thank you for those of you stuck with the podcast to the end. I know my mic was very poppy. Weird week. We were having some connection issues. We're going to do this on a little bit different thing next week. Make sure that that does not happen to you. But a lot of great content in there. Brady was on fire. Loved it. Uh, and as always, make sure you go check out footballbyfootball.com. We got some new videos up there this week. Uh, podcasts will also be placed there as well. Hearing stuff from the the two Bradys and myself getting after it and uh, really enjoying this NFL season. So thanks again for your listenership. Have a wonderful weekend, folks. Thanks for listening to the Football by Football podcast. Football insight by football players. Hi, Lucky. Hi, Dusty. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned.